We're going to read from 1 Chronicles 29, so turn in your Bibles, you'll find page 574. David has asked the people of Israel a question about whether they want to commit themselves to the building of a temple for God's glory. The question came in verse 5, where he said, Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? It was a request for primarily for finances and um, for people to literally put their money where their mouth was. If they worship God with their mouth, to then be people who would put their finances into the building of the temple that would be um, for God's glory. And we're drawing connections with what David shows us about commitment to God in the century in which he lived. Um, I think it's about nine centuries before Christ. And how we can draw connections and threads with what Jesus calls his people to commit to him today in the building of his church. So we're going to take up, I'll read from verse 10, but our focus is going to be on verses 14 to 16 today. So let me read from verse 10. The people have just given an unbelievably large amount of gifts for the building of the temple. And David is just very excited, so he prays. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you're exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I want us to think today about the theme of, um, of giving, of generosity toward God. And uh, I think that probably it's, it's, it's sometimes, I think it's fair to say that it's probably one of the hardest subjects to speak on just because it's sensitive. It's very, very um, sensitive for a lot of people. People find it um, that they react to the whole subject of giving on a couple of levels. I think for those who are outside the church or have witnessed some of the abuses of the church, one of the things people find frustrating is that Christians, not just Christians, but certainly Christians talk about money a lot and say, you guys are just all about money. And I would just want to say in response to that, that while I, I totally um, would agree that abuses within the church of possessions and, and of um, you know, milking people for, for money, for just, un, just wrongful gain, is, is evil. We went, to, um, we went to a place called Soweto, which is just outside Johannesburg. And uh, it's the township that's grown. It's a massive, sprawling township of, um, of black South Africans. 
and right there in the middle of Soweto, which is a very mixed th place now. You have very poor, but you also have quite wealthy people. It's where Mandela and uh, Desmond Tutu grew up. You have this enormous cathedral-type structure, a church that's apparently um, led by some Brazilians who drive, these pastors drive their Ferraris and all kinds of stuff. And obviously the message they're preaching is one that I wouldn't ever want to um, endorse. And you can see I don't drive a Ferrari. And um, that, so I totally sympathize with the problem of the abuse of money within the church. And, but I would also want to push back and say this, that anything that's important to us in life, anything that's important to us in life, we put our, fi our finance into, our money into in some way. Um, you know, yesterday, some of you may have spent eight pounds for a rose. Uh, because if, if your wife or your girlfriend is precious to you, you might go and do that. I actually don't celebrate Valentine's Day. I boycott Valentine's Day. I just <laughs> set that out there before you ask my wife what I did. But, um, you know, when things are precious to you, you put your money into them. So why not in faith? Why not in religion? When we're talking about something which is of inestimable and incomparable worth in the life of the believer, I think it's totally appropriate that we talk about money, especially as it's the one thing that most, is most likely to compete with your affections for Christ. Um, that's why we approach it and hit this hard. I think another reason why people react and switch off when we're talking about the subject of giving is just because you might feel like you have nothing. And it's irrelevant to you because you're, you're not wealthy enough. And I would just want to, you know, if I could draw alongside you, put my arm around you and say, it's okay, uh, God loves you, but listen, there's still a call for you to give. Do you remember how Jesus, um, it says in Luke 21, that he looked up and saw rich putting their gifts into the offering box at the temple, this is, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Now, how much was that? You can check in your footnote that, these coins were one 128th of a denarius, which was a day's uh, earnings. So if we were to equate that with modern, if you're going on minimum wage for today, people earn about £45.50 for a day's work. And um, that was actually quite precise, wasn't it? I did do the calculations earlier. They earn £45.50 for seven hours work at minimum wage. And if you were to give a one 128th of that, it'd be about 35 pence. So she put in the equivalent of 70p into the offering box that day. And look how Jesus responds. He says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Jesus was more pleased, in other words, with her gift than all the wealthy people putting their stuff in. So I don't care where you're coming from on this issue, it's relevant to us all and we all need to f uh, listen up and think about this thing and its implications for our lives. But look how David approaches it at the beginning of this, this section, verse 14. He says, who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus, or be able thus to offer willingly? I think it's amazing that far from regarding giving as a sacrifice or as a drudgery or anything of the kind, David starts from entirely the other end of the spectrum and sees it as all privilege. He says it in a few different ways. Let's just break that down phrase by phrase. He says, who am I and what is my people? What does he mean? He's saying 
effectively, why is it that of all the people on the planet, you chose us to be your people who get to do something for you, God? Now, as Christians, I think that we should have that sense more than any people on the planet, that we know that God saved us of his own grace and, and, and brought us into his kingdom through giving us his son. And our, we can say this with, with total integrity. Who am I? Because you knew you weren't worthy. Who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to thus to offer willingly? I have an aunt who was born in, um, in the 1940s, I guess, um, so when she got to her sort of mid to late teens, so it'd be around the late 50s, early 60s, she had about 20 proposals of marriage. Um, I've seen pictures of her. She was a good-looking lady. Um, it's a bit awkward when you're talking about your aunt, but I think it was true. Anyway, um, and she eventually settled, of course, on the man who was my uncle, my uncle David, who married her. Now. If you were to put yourselves in the shoes of, of David, the man who, who, find, who was the guy who won her hand, do you think that when it came to birthdays and Christmas and opportunities to give Valentine's gifts, Day. Valentine's Day, of course, <laughs> give gifts to your spouse, do you think at any point he felt a begrudging about that? I'm sure that on the contrary, he felt... He's passed away now, which is why I'm speaking in the past tense. But I'm sure, on the contrary, the, he would have felt, she chose me. She chose me of all the men who, who tried to marry her. And that's how David approaches the subject of giving. He says, why is it that you look at us? He goes on, he says that we should be able thus to offer willingly. What does he mean? He means this, that God doesn't need your contributions. He doesn't need your giving. He doesn't need your generosity. God, as we'll talk about later, is, is wealthy. So for David to say, why us? Why is it that we're able to give? I think he's saying, saying this. That for some reason, God in his wisdom has decided to give us the power to, to, um, to make a meaningful contribution to the building of his kingdom. He didn't have to give us that privilege or that ability or that power. He could have done it without us. But, but when you think about what it means to be saved, it's not just that God wants to give you a ticket to heaven and some kind of like pass that you can one day cash in at the gates and then you're, that's it, you're, done, you're fine for eternity. What God wants to do is completely restore your humanity and what has become crumbled and broken and distorted in your life. And when you look back at the Garden of Eden, how God created man and woman in perfection, part of their humanity was purpose, was living for something bigger than themselves. God made Adam and Eve to work, and to work in such a way that they would find satisfaction and joy in their labors. Now, I know that all of us find that work is not always satisfying, is not always joy-giving. But when God saves us, not only does he put meaning into the work you do on a day-to-day -day basis, but he also invites you into the bigger purpose of the building of his kingdom in the world. So that with David, you can say, who am I that I am able to be a part of this? I don't know if you've heard, but there's a, um, there's a Dutch company which is, is planning a mission to Mars, a manned mission to Mars. And it, 
they're a private company, and what they plan to do is put four people on Mars to begin with, and then every so often they're going to add to it another four people and send these one-way rockets with no guarantee of a safe arrival and absolutely no chance of ever returning to Earth. And the weird thing about it is that hundreds of thousands of people have applied to, to go on these missions. And they've narrowed it down to, so far, 660 of the applicants. And of those 660, I saw a video this week where they were interviewing three of them from different parts of the world and asking them, why, you know, why are you doing this? And one of these guys, his reason was just this, that it's not often in life that you get a chance to do something that will essentially put your name in the history books. He wanted to make a difference. He felt powerless to make a difference in any other way, and so he's applied to do this. He'd be one of the first people, potentially, to live on Mars. Now, we can question whether that's a, a meaningful goal for your life, but the point stands that when you have the privilege of being part of something bigger, you'll want to lay down everything for that cause. These guys anticipate dying on Mars. And this is what David's saying. Who am I? We're saved by grace. That we're able, that somehow God in his wisdom and his mercy has given us the resources and the potential to be part of something bigger than us to offer willingly, he goes on. What does he mean when he says that? He means this, that none of us by nature are generous people. Babies do give away things, but they also quickly take them back and snatch from each other. I think that we are by default selfish with potential for generosity. And David is astounded as he looks out across the people of Israel and sees this heartfelt, joyful giving to the, to the building of his temple. And he says, this is nothing short of a miracle. In the New Testament, Paul tells us that when we give, we should give joyfully. He, he says that we should be hilarious givers, that there should be a fun and an excitement and a joy to giving. But that is an impossibility when God hasn't moved on your heart and moved in you to, to want to be a part of something that glorifies him. So David, rather than starting from the negative, oh, why do we have to give? He starts from the other angle and he sees it as all privilege, as a sign of God's saving work in their lives and as a sign that they are that God's spirit has moved in their hearts and that they get to be part of something bigger and I wanted just to lay that all down it's the first line of what we're looking at but that's our kind of starting point from when talking about giving this is not in any way ever meant to be a guilt manipulation to do something you don't want to do when we give it ought to be a response to the goodness of God at work in our lives now David gives us three big reasons why we should give. Let me just unfold those for you. The first is this, that all of your stuff belongs to God. You guys are all distracted by Evelyn right now. Every single head in the room is looking at that cute baby. She is gorgeous, I understand. All of your stuff, hear me, this is the first thing. All of your stuff belongs to God. He says it twice. Look at verse 14. He says, For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. So we've given back the things that were yours anyway, he says. And then he says it again in verse 16. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we provided for building you a house for your holy name 
comes from your hand and is all your own. I don't know if you ever think about this, about who owns your stuff, but I don't think that by default we look at our possessions and think, these aren't really mine. So when you got dressed this morning and you pulled your jeans out of the cupboard or whatever, you didn't put them on and think, God, thank you that I get to borrow these for today. Or you didn't, last time you checked your account balance in the cash machine, you didn't look at it and say, God, thank you for loaning me all this money. It's brilliant. Or some of you, I know it's negative, so it'd be a slightly different reaction. But, but you don't look at your stuff and think, well, oh, this isn't really my stuff. But the Bible always comes from that perspective that everything you have is a gift from God and that he's, he's entrusted it to you, but it really belongs to him. You've probably heard this story, but there's an evangelist called uh, uh, Canon J. John, who's attached to the Church of England and a very brilliant speaker. But he tells a story which um, sort of just illustrates this. He says, a man went to uh, catch a flight at an airport. And upon his arrival at the airport, he thought, first of all, I just want to sit down and have a coffee. And he bought a coffee and he bought a few of those little donuts that you can get in a bag. And he sat down... He looked across the whole of the coffee shop and found that all the tables were full except for one. And there's a guy sat there. So he sat opposite this man. And he just sort of relaxed into his seat, picked up his coffee, had a sip. Then he reached over, grabbed his bag of donuts, and just took one, put it back on the table. The guy who sat across from him is reading his newspaper. And he looks up, and he sees the bag of donuts, and he stretches across the table, grabs the donuts, pulls them to him, has one, puts them back in the middle of the table, smiles, and then carries on reading his paper. Now, the first man at this point is horrified, but of course, being British, he doesn't say anything. He just (laughs) passive-aggressively humps a little bit, slams his coffee down, whatever. He ignores it. He takes another donut, pulls it back, the bag to him, leaves it on his side of the table. At that moment, the other man looks up, smiles that benign smile, puts his paper down, reaches across the table grabs the bag of donuts, pulls them across, has one, and then puts them back in the middle of the table, well within reach of the first man. And of course, at this point, he's thinking, this guy is crazy. You know what you do with crazy people, you don't talk to them. So he just lays it, lets it lie, and sure enough, the guy, it's time for him to go and catch his flight, so the guy with the newspaper disappears off. And our man looks at his watch, realizes it's time for him to go catch his flight. So he, uh, he stands up, puts his coat on, he's feeling a bit irritated as you would, and he reaches down to pick up his bag to go and catch the flight, and there on top of his bag is his bag of donuts. All the time, the other man hadn't been stealing his, he'd been sharing his with him. And then J. John finishes with this immortal line, which is really why this story stuck in my head. He says, God owns all the donuts. You will never forget that line. Every time you're tempted to be stingy with your stuff, God owns all the donuts. That's where the Bible starts from when it comes to possessions and money and all that kind of stuff. Now, you might then ask me, well, if God owns everything, why does he ask us to give it back to him? There's an expression, isn't there, an Indian gift giver. I'm sure it's racist, but it's something to do with the, nati- the history of the Native Americans. I don't really know. But anyway, the idea is when you give something and then ask for it back, it's, it's the most irritating thing. So you could ask, well, why does God give us stuff and then demand that we give back a portion to him? What is the point of that? And I would give you a few reasons why I think that God does that. The first is because 
God has given us a reminder that everything we have is ultimately His. I think that by default we tend to forget spiritual realities, don't we? And most of all, spiritual realities that we don't particularly want to remember, like the ones concerning our stuff. And when you forget that the things you possess are not yours, but God's, or that he has entrusted them to you, the fruit in your life will be anxiety as you worry about possessions. It will be greed. And at extreme cases, it becomes oppression and all kinds of stuff. So God has given us the gift of giving in order to free us from the illusion that the things we have are ours and to remind us that it all comes from him in the first place. Another reason why I think he's given us this gift of giving has to do with what I've already been talking about, which is this partnership in the greater mission. That God wants us to have a sense of purpose in life and of belonging to something bigger than ourselves. I don't know where you're seeking satisfaction in life. I don't know where you think your purpose lies. Whether it's in the ambitions or your career or all those kinds of things. But soon enough, you're going to wake up one day and realize that you have done it and it isn't, it isn't big enough, that you need to be part of something bigger. And I think that there is, this is one of the greatest and most profound aspects of what it means to belong to Christ's kingdom, that you are part of a worldwide mission that stretches the full span of history as well as reaching every corner of the globe. And God, in his wisdom and in his grace, and he calls us co-workers with Christ. You get to be a partner with Jesus in the work of the extension of his kingdom in the world. It's a bit like how when you're a kid, your parents sometimes might just give you money, like a five pound or a 10 or a 20 pound note, and send you down to the shops with a little shopping list of things to buy. And if they were nice parents, they might then also say you can buy yourself something, a chocolate bar or a little bag of sweets, or keep the change, depending on how much the change was. And I think it's a little bit like that with the whole thing of what it means to be part of God's work, that he puts the money in your hand, and your primary mission is then to use that for his kingdom. But you get to enjoy the privileges of creation alongside that. This is why God then invites us to give back to him. It's because then we become part of something bigger than us. And I would also just add this, that the truth that it all belongs to God is a truth that cuts in two directions. It cuts in the direction, as we've been saying, that we are obliged to give back to God. But it also means that God has promised to give to us. And if you forget that you are called to give back to God, you will also forget that God, in his love and his kindness and his fatherly mercy, is the one who gives you by far the majority in this thing. That he's your provider. The minute you cut that connection and think of your stuff as your own, is in one sense, when you, when you close the doors to God's grace being poured into your life in more provision, and, and God taking away the fear and the anxiety of whether you'll have enough. The Christian is someone who can freely give back to God because they know that if it's all his, he'll also provide for their needs and that it works in both directions. It's a little bit like marriage. When you get married, about a year after we got married, we opened up 
a joint account. And as my wife has often said, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. And <laughs> when you get married, the whole thing about having like joint accounts, sharing stuff, in some ways it renders the whole thing of buying gifts for each other a little bit meaningless because it was your shared money in the first place. Unless there's some actual cost for one of you to give away, like you had a limited budget, which there isn't in our marriage. So whenever I buy her things, or when she buys me things, it's almost like, well, we're buying it for ourselves anyway. But I think it works a little bit like that with God, that when you come to know God and you're in relationship with him, it's like you have a joint account. Now, he's putting in by far the majority, but he wants you to contribute. So your giving is only one side of the coin. The other side is that God provides for your every need. So that's the first thing David says, that God owns all the stuff. All things come from you, and of your own we have given you. Secondly, he says this, that you're just tenants in someone else's place. Look at verse 15, the first part. He says this, We are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. He's still thinking about this whole theme of giving. So what does he mean here when he calls us strangers and sojourners? Just to clarify, he's not talking about the way we would use the word stranger, as in someone you, you don't really know, like somebody on the tube or something like that. The, the language of stranger and sojourners has more to do with, um, uh, it's sometimes translated alien. So like in the song, I'm an illegal alien, I'm an Englishman in New York. That's the kind of language that's, that's used here. And the reason why David says this is because he's thinking about what it meant for Israel to be living in such an amazing country where they could enjoy so many privileges. They knew that they, they'd been given this land by God, that they, they were there for as long as God in his mercy and his grace kept them there, and that God at any point could remove them from the land. Now here's the funny thing. In the New Testament, Peter, in 1 Peter 2, uses the exact same language about what it means to be a Christian in the world. He says, you're strangers and sojourners in the world. That you're just temporary residents. The implications of it are this, that for the Israelites, they understood that to live in the land, which was their source of wealth and their source of blessing, meant that they had what you could call covenant privileges. The covenant was their relationship with God. So if you marry a rich man, your covenant privileges are that you get to spend some of his cash. The covenant privileges for Israel, that's if you're a woman, by the way, um, the covenant privileges for Israel were that they get to live in a land where they get fruitfulness and peace and protection and all the good things that it meant for them to dwell in the land flowing with milk and honey. But the other side of that was that God laid on them covenant obligations. They were to be his people. They were to worship him of all the gods in the world. They were to be, as the passage which Chloe read resonates with, because it's originally said about Israel, they were to be a light to the nations. In other words, a kind of enlightened people who knew God and were meant to spread the knowledge of God in the world. Covenant privileges, covenant obligations. Now, there are any number of experiences in life in which you can enter into the same kind of arrangement. Let's say you, um, you open up a business within and you hire an office. 
you get you get privileges of being in a certain location, having an address, being able to access the electricity, the internet, the water, all that kind of stuff. But there are also obligations. You need to take care of the building. You need to um, pay your rent and all these kinds of things. And so when David is using this language, he's saying we're just strangers and sojourners. What he's saying is this, that we are tenants within the land that God has given us. And that that not only means that we enjoy the blessings from God, it means we also have the obligations that God has laid on us. Privileges, really, to be a part of his purposes in the world. And friends, the same is true for us today. It's not any different just because we're, we're Gentiles and not Jews and that we live all around the world and not in Israel. When Jesus was criticizing his contemporaries, he told them a parable called the parable, it's, it's named in my Bible, the parable of the tenants. It's in Matthew 21. And he tells a story about a man who, who, who basically builds a farm. He has a wine press and a tower and, all, and the walls and all this stuff, and he left, leaves tenants in the farm to take care of the farm. Now, Jesus is talking to his generation at this point. And he tells a story. He says that when the season for fruit drew near, he, the owner sent his servants to, to the tenants to get his fruit. So they were there to do their job, to earn their salary, and to make the farm fruitful for his benefit. But it says that they, they took his servants, they beat one, they killed another, they stoned another, and he did it again. The same happened. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants, when they saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard, killed him. He said, when, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He said to them, He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who'll give him the fruits in their seasons. And then he brings it to a conclusion. This is his, the application. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus' contemporaries, the religious authorities, really hated him. He says, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So at that point, he's talking about himself. He's saying, one of the ways in which you failed is that you have failed to honor the owner. You're not worshipers anymore. And then he criticizes them with the second thing. He says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He says, your second failure is that you have failed to be fruitful. These were their covenant obligations that they were called to be worshippers and that they were called to be fruitful people in the land. Now, what does it mean for you and me today? It means much the same thing. That God, in calling us to be His people and bringing us unto His mission, has brought us into the most privileged position that we could imagine. But He's also called us to, to have that same obligation. Firstly, to honor the cornerstone, to honor Jesus, to be worshippers, and secondly, to be fruitful. That our contribution, personally and as a church, is going to be a meaningful one to the building of God's kingdom. This is what it means to be a stranger or a sojourner, or as we've been saying, a tenant within God's 
greater property, his world. And this is why God's calling for you to be generous toward him. He owns all the stuff. We are just tenants within his property. The third one is this. Friends, you're not here for long. This is how he puts it in the second half of verse 15. He says, our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. Sooner or later, everybody, it kind of clicks for people at different times in their lives. I think this is partly what midlife crisis is about. But sooner or later, everyone realizes that their life is short. That you go from living under the illusion that you're kind of, you've got endless time to realizing that the clock is ticking and your life is short and that it's really only a blip in the grand scheme of things. What do you do when you realize that? I think people have a number of reactions. One of them is that people, some people go crazy. Um, they think, well, if this is it, I'm just going um, to spend all I can, enjoy everything, and just live life for pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. And uh, the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon is exploring the meaning of life, this is one of the things he describes, and he, he puts it in this language. We might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Now, both Jesus and Paul pick up on that language in the New Testament. Paul uses it in the context of what it means about the shortness of life. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So this life is it. You may as well just live for pleasure. Because what else is there to live for? Some people go crazy. Some people fall into despair. This is what we were reading a few weeks ago, the parable of the talents, where a master leaves um, certain amounts of money in the possession of his servants. And one of the servants, he does absolutely nothing with it. He's basically a depressed, pessimistic, despairing man. And he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have, have what's yours. And the master says, you wicked and slothful servant. So some people go crazy. Other people just, just in despair at the shortness of life and hopelessness just do nothing with the talents they've got and just become slothful layabouts and do nothing with the resources. Never produce anything in their life. And there's a third type of person, I think. Some people live in constant denial of the fact that life is short and that they live as though they're going to live forever, basically. And their attitude to possessions is that as though they'll never be taken away. Again, Jesus tells another parable that hits this one um, on the head in Luke chapter 12, where he talks about a man who has a lot of goods and large barns and then he realizes his barns are full and so what does he do? He says, I'll, I'll, I'll knock them down and build bigger barns and store more stuff in those barns. And then what happens, he says, he says, he says to himself, soul, 
you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So he's living in complete denial of the fact that he's going to die. And then it says, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. People live in denial as though accumulating in this life is really the purpose of life. Now the Christian is a person who does not respond in any of these ways. He doesn't go crazy, he doesn't fall into despair, and he doesn't live in denial. What does he do instead? He lives under the awareness of the immense privilege of what it is to give to God because of the shortness of life. He sees it as good news for this reason. That we, we get to invest into eternity in a wildly disproportionate way. Jesus says, don't store up treasure on earth, but, but store up treasure in heaven. The implication of what he's saying is that when we give to God, it's like we're investing into eternity and the rewards that God will give us in eternity. It's in Matthew 6. You have to realize that if, if the pleasure in this life were what life was about, you would eventually fall into a miserable state of depression when you have exhausted that pleasure. If you ask me, I think this is what the, um, the Fifty Shades sort of phenomena is about. Why is it that the book, now the film, the books in the film are so wildly popular? And it has to do with this, that when people think that life is about now and about pleasure in the now, they start to pursue it in whatever ways they think they'll get that pleasure. But eventually, they hit bottom. So if it's sex, you'll eventually come to a point where you realize this isn't enough. So what do you do at that point? You either walk away and try something else or you push even harder. And so the whole sadomasochism thing, which is obviously going to only increase in popularity is an attempt to dig deeper and find more pleasures within the world and the God, the idol of sex. Because if it's become boring like this, then all we need to do is make it a bit more kinky and a bit more weird. And as Christians, you've got to step back from that as well as other pursuits of pleasure in life and realize that if it's just about this, wow, nothing is ultimately going to satisfy me. But instead, we get to invest in eternity where the Bible says we will have pleasures evermore at God's right hand in Psalm 16. Now that requires immense faith because you don't get necessarily to taste that in fullness now. You have to believe God's word that it's available for you then. That's where faith comes in. That's what it talks about in Hebrews 11 when it talks about those who live for a city that they haven't seen. They're living for a kingdom that they'll get to live in one day, but that they've not yet seen. So they're only trusting God's word that it even exists. As Christians, the reason we give now is because we recognize this isn't it. And the pleasures you can have from your wealth on this earth are not it. 
If you make your goal having a nice property and a nice car and being able to do all the things you want to do and all the holidays that you want to do, ultimately you'll hit the bottom and realize that it's all just fallen between your fingers. As Jesus puts it, when moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, these things crumble away in the end. Try and exhaust it and you will soon enough. But as Christians, we understand that the little that we give now to God becomes an investment beyond our wildest dreams in the scope of eternity when God gives back to us. They say that if you invest in your pension between the age of 20 and 30, you'll accumulate more and stop at 30. You'll have more in your pension account by the time you're 70 than if you put in money from between 30 and 70. The reason being what Einstein called the miracle of compound interest. That all the money that you put in between the age of 20 and 30 begins to earn more interest than any money that you could put in between 30 and 70. And so it grows and grows and snowballs and snowballs. Now it makes me very sad because I didn't have a pension until last year when I turned 30. (laughs) But I think what we're touching on there is it's such a tiny scale in comparison with what Christ promises us in eternity. We're talking about putting in a bit of money into your pension pot to have a larger pension when you retire. Jesus says, put money into my kingdom and you will have an infinity of time to enjoy what God will bless you with in eternity. This is what motivates David. This is what motivates Christians. And as I said, this is what it means to live a life of faith when it comes to money. It's trusting that God's promises are good. Let me close by just giving you three very quick, practical, and I hope biblical points on what I understand about giving. That we should give promptly, proportionately, and painfully. Let me just explain those. When I say that I think we're called to give promptly, I mean this, that the temptation always when it comes to giving is that you should wait until there's a good time. But I know, um, because I'm probably a little bit further on than most of you in this room, and uh, I've also listened to a lot of older, wiser people than me, that there is never a good time to give. The minute you've managed to save up enough money to pay your deposit on rent, then you're saving for a deposit for your mortgage. Once you've bought your house, you're saving to do it up. Once you've done it up, you're saving to educate your children. And it just goes on and on. There's never a good time. The best time to give, then, is is right now. And this applies also for those of you who think, I don't have enough to be giving to God. You think, I think people reason with themselves and say, I'll start to give when, when I'm wealthy enough that, that I'm able to. But I promise you that if your plan is to give when you're wealthy, by that point, your heart will be so encrusted and unable to give that you won't want to give to God. I am an advocate of children tithing their pocket money. I think we need to learn how to give from the earliest moment we can. When we have more than we need, we start giving away. Even when we don't have more than we need. 
Give promptly. Give proportionately. This is a biblical principle that God call on people to give in proportion with what they, they, their income. And um, that God doesn't bless the rich man because he gives more than he blesses the poor man who gives less. And that was the point that came out of the parable of the widow's might, wasn't it? And so for those of you who think, I don't have much, give now and give a little. Jesus is looking at your heart and honestly, I think you, in Christ's eyes, that your gifts can be more pleasing to him than if you were earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a year and giving to him a tenth of that or whatever it was you chose. And give painfully. John Piper talks about the Christian call to wartime living. Now, he, everything he talks about, he talks about to an extreme. So you need to weigh this in your own heart. But what he means is this, that when, when, when countries are at war, when Britain was at war in the 1940s, food was scarce and rations were imposed upon families. You would bring in your ration book and you would get a certain portion of food for the number of people in your family. Clothes as well. You had to make your clothes last. You would patch them up. This is what it means to be living in wartime. And for the Christian, whose understanding of life and the world and God's mission in the world is one of a, an unfolding cosmic battle, won by Christ at the cross, but still in all its implications being worked out in the world, we recognize that we are at war for the hearts and minds of people. And that while we can take the stuff that God's put in our care and indulge ourselves, a wartime mindset is to say, I'm going to live on as little as I can to give as much as I can. It was said of John Wesley that he, um, he decided at a young age what he could live on reasonably. He set his budget, and from then on, for the rest of his life, he never increased it, but gave away every extra th amount that he earned. I've told you stories about others who've lived like this. It said Spurgeon that he died with an empty bank account because he just gave and gave and gave. And the guy would have earned a lot of money. He published lots of books, and he was, he was the most popular preacher of his day. Wartime living is an acknowledgement that the stuff God's put in your hands is for the greater cause. Now, I want to say that with balance because God has also given us creation to enjoy. And I don't want you to go away guilty that if you have a beer with your dinner or you, you switch on your nice Panasonic TV that these things are wrong in and of themselves. It's with your conscience before God that you decide what you can enjoy in life. And God has given these things for us to enjoy by His grace. But there is a line that we cross, isn't there? Where we start to think of our things as our own, indulge our lives. And I think, therefore, that the principle that you give painfully is this. That you give to a point where you notice the difference. Where you have to make sacrifices. Sacrifices that say to God, I love you. Sacrifices that 
mean that you have to change your lifestyle. Give promptly, give proportionately, give painfully.